Well, good morning, IBC family. As I kind of shared with the Upper Room clan last night, um, it's really good to have the Harrisons here with us. And uh, some of our first memories, my wife and I, our first memories was being at the, where the Harrisons were staying uh, at the time, and I got a, a fresh roasted cup of coffee. Not just not just a cup of coffee, but he actually roasted it in his popcorn maker, and then uh, to whatever I wanted, and then made a cup of coffee out of it. And our our first trip here was uh, in the month of March when we were uh, candidating here, and, and we weren't even living here. We had no kids at that time, anything like that, and. Uh, um, <laughs> And we're like, man, this is a great place, a great church, you know. And, and the people we met were the Engels, like Tanya Engel, you know. We stayed at her house. We, we met the Harrisons. We're like, man, these people are just so great. And then we moved here, and they all left. And so, so they left. The Engels left. And it was like, in fact, even Tanya Engel tried to sell us her house. And it was like, man, what is this, you know. Anyways, obviously, as you guys attested to, uh, it really speaks to this body, and so thank you, church family, for being such a loving, supportive, gracious church family. Um, no doubt we all make conclusions about one another. No doubt we make uh, judgments, not in a bad way necessarily, but we make judgments about one another as we go about life. We, uh, as we go about our day, sometimes we see people and without even consciously or purposefully making a judgment, we're always kind of making some sort of assessment of what we think about people. And, and sometimes we can tell really you know, what about somebody based on how they look or how they act or what they say or what they don't say. In fact, I was just uh, recalling yesterday, I, was, I think it was yesterday or Thursday, um, you know that little intersection between on First Street and Lincoln, you're going north on Lincoln, one's a turn lane and one's go straight through. You know what I'm talking about? You can always tell when someone's not around here when they're in the turn lane driving straight through. And uh, every once in a while you'll see, because I run across the street, I'm acknowledging that, I don't take the crosswalk, I just race across from the church doors to the parking lot. And, uh, and I'm always looking, and you can tell, like, okay, if no one's in that lane, you can run across, except for when someone is in the other lane, but they still drive through. And so you have to kind of get up, pick up the pace a little bit. And, and I'm like, as you're running across, you're like, obviously not from around here. And, and immediately, I look at their license plate, and I go, <laughs> Colorado, of course, you know, they're... <laughs> But anyways, what we do is we we make conclusions about people. We kind of go, oh, based on what they do right now, I'm I'm making an assessment, not necessarily a bad one, just just to kind of, it could even be neutral in nature. nature. We oftentimes do this with people uh, when we come along, you know, uh, our confront somebody that uh, maybe isn't from a different, uh, from around here, they're maybe from a different country, uh, you can tell very quickly that they may not be from Port Angeles, Washington, because they, maybe they speak a little differently, you can tell people from the kind of northern mist, Midwest, because they, they can elongate their vowels, like Minnesota, you know, you know what I'm talking about, Dave Cutter, right? So, um, we, uh, we, you can tell people from the South because they have that Southern drawl and they kind of just kind of take their time to say everything they're going to say, you know, and so you're like, and we as thankfully in Port Angeles, we are normal, so we don't have any <laughs> accent, so thankfully we are, we, we fit the, the neutral mold, I guess. The fact is, 
depending on how someone dresses, you can even tell if someone's from an urban context sometimes versus a rural context because urban people dress real trendy and, and rural people, you know, we have Romeos. That's the trendy thing in Port Angeles. Romeos and clean car hearts, you know, for Sunday. And so um, all these things are just kind of, I, I think I'm digging myself a hole here, but uh, <laughs> all these things are just kind of just... Just ways of life. You can tell people are from all kinds of places and we're all very eclectic and diverse based on sometimes our origin, based on where we've grown up or where we're coming from. Certain things, even about Port Angeles, make us very unique to Port Angeles. I also believe that you should be able to tell what a Christian is like based on how they act. You should be able to, t- to tell what a Christian is like, or they sh- a Christian should stand out based on a couple of maybe determining factors. For example, oftentimes the easiest thing is, you know, the kinds of things uh, a Christian would say or not say. The kinds of things a Christian would do or not do. I recall when I was on the pipeline in Alaska, I worked seasonally for 10 years on the pipeline there, and uh, it was always an inter- you know, when I was in my undergrad going to a, just a secular four-year school, uh, it wasn't as uh, contrasting in nature, but when I went to seminary and continued to work on the pipeline, I'd go from studying theology and church history, and just, isn't God so good, and I'd come off in the, off the, kind of the, the airport there in Anchorage, Alaska, getting picked up by my boss, and I was like first five minutes were just kind of this sudden, I'm not in seminary anymore. <laughs> I am back to the field work. And field work people are unique people. Um, basically, I, it, was, it was very easy to stand out. If it didn't drop the F-bomb every other word, it was easy to stand out. If I, didn't, if I didn't say certain things or comply with certain things or even just laugh about certain things, it was very easy to stand out. Now, thankfully, I got along great with my boss and all the crew. Uh, I was always very thankful. I was very respected there. But at the same time, they knew. They even called me their token missionary. You know? and, and like eventually, you're going to convert all of us, maybe, but you know, we'll just going to have to see about that. But the point is, I go to the pipeline, I'm like, wow, this is not a Christian context. But then you go to seminary, and obviously you're surrounded by lots of Christians, hopefully, and uh, many people that profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see that there were some unique characteristics and determining factors that made a Christian a Christian. Now what's interesting is that it's very possible, in fact very common, for people to act Christian and not actually be Christian. It's very common to, in a sense, go through the motions to even be somewhat religious in nature and never actually be a Christian. So it sort of begs the question for us here this morning is what characteristics are unique to being a genuine follower of Jesus? What characteristics are unique to being an authentic or genuine Christian? What principles are true or are consistent with the kingdom of heaven? Last week, you might recall that we went through, uh, we, we talked about five different descriptions of what it means to follow Jesus. 
And now we begin Jesus' first recorded sermon here in Matthew chapter 5. Now recall, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew here, Jesus has just begun his ministry. He's been anointed by the Spirit. He's been affirmed by his Father. He's passed to the temptation in the wilderness and really, uh, really uh, in a sense, empathizes even with our weakness in doing so. Now we see that he's going around all the region, as, as Matthew will say at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is going all, all over the place, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among all the people. So we see very quickly that Jesus is, he's not wasting any time. Jesus is on a mission. He knows what he's here to do. He knows what he's, what he's all about. He knows his identity. And he's actually uh, very uh, ambitious and almost kind of goes around with a sense of urgency, not rushed, but with a sense of urgency on behalf of the souls of people. And we see that as a result of his ministry already, we see that he begins to um, kind of gather a great following. His reputation is growing very rapidly. It's growing very broadly. We see that many people are following Jesus for a variety of reasons, mind you. I mean, they're not following him because they necessarily have bought into his message. They're following him because maybe they're dazzled by the healings and the miracles. Maybe they're dazzled by, and again, he was a rabbi who taught like no one else. He was someone who taught in a way that really kind of stood out among the typical rabbis or teachings that people came along and, and normally did. And so Jesus was already developing quite a reputation in the area. Finally, seeing all the crowds, we see that as Matthew says in chapter 5, he goes up on the mountain and he sits down with his disciples. And as they come to him, he opens his mouth and he begins teaching. What we see here in chapters 5 through chapter 7 is Jesus' first recorded sermon. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is unique in the sense that it it really has kind of five main sections to it, and, and they're all kind of wrapped around kind of major sermons that Jesus teaches. And so we see this is the first of five major sermons that are recorded and we see there are many like, kind of narrative uh, illustrations and, and narrative examples kind of sandwiching five major sermons, the Sermon on the Mount being the first sermon we get to. Now, we should not conclude when we see here in verses uh, 1 that when Jesus went up to the mountainside, his disciples came to him. We might actually quickly say, oh, his 12 disciples. He just called his disciples. And so he's kind of escaping the crowds, kind of like what he did in the boat and went across to the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Yes, he's, in a sense, retreating from his ministry, maybe kind of taking a slightly different angle to his ministry, but he's not retreating from everybody because as we see at the end of chapter 7, many people are dazzled, many people are astonished and amazed at Jesus' Jesus's teaching. So, many people are still sitting there waiting to hear what Jesus has to say. I think it's important, however, as we listen to Jesus' first sermon, we need to understand, or we need to understand how we are to listen and therefore interpret Jesus' sermon here. In other words, we can't necessarily read Jesus' sermon or listen to his sermon much like we would listen to the Apostle Paul's sermon. 
The Apostle Paul is very logical in nature. He's very linear in approach, and so he's going he's to kind of build on one thing or another, and not, not that Jesus doesn't do that at times, but we must understand, in a sense, the rules by which we are to interpret and listen to this sermon. First of all, let me help you understand context. The three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount are all about the kingdom. Once again, we, we saw it in chapter four. He went around all of the place proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so the three chapters here in chapters five through seven of Matthew are all about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But more specifically, we see that the sermon here is like Jesus' manifesto, as, as actually Gary Gadini actually even said this last past weekend, it's like Jesus' Magna Carta. This is why Matthew will say things like this, and he opened his mouth. That seems a little obvious that Jesus would have to open his mouth in order to teach. But there's actually, when you understand the kind of the cultural customs, the literary customs there, there's a reason why he says he opened his mouth. In other words, when Jesus opened his mouth, it was like, oh, it's time to be quiet. It would be like a dignitary, for example, or someone that was a highly respected coming into the room, and there may be a lot of conversations going on, but when they come in, it's like, oh, hush, hush, time to be quiet. What I have to say pales in comparison to what this person has to say. So Jesus opens his mouth, and he begins to teach, and, and what he's really doing, he's helping us understand what it means to be a citizen of this heavenly kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom, but what Jesus wants to help people understand is this is what it looks like to be a citizen of this kingdom. These are the characteristics, these are the features that are kind of unique to these kinds of people. In the United States or in any country, there's a process by which someone must go through in order to become a citizen of that country. And oftentimes you have to take a class you have to uh, you know, fill out a, t- a ton of paperwork, no doubt, and you have to do all sorts of kind of, uh, kind of things uh, as a process of becoming a citizen of that particular country, and the purpose of that is to understand the customs, understand the expectations, understand the rules of the land uh, wherever you are seeking to be a citizen, and so there's an, there's an important process by which you are, in a sense, citizenized. <laughs> And in the same way, Jesus is seeking to help us understand, if you want to understand what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom, then, the, then you must pay attention to how I describe the values of this kingdom. Speaking of the values of the kingdom, the intent that Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, is his intent is to target the heart. Jesus' primary intent in teaching this sermon is to target the heart and to foster transformation of the heart so that our outer self, our outer actions will follow accordingly. In other words, our external life, what we see on the surface, what is visible to other people, must derive from a transformed inner life. After all, as we see Scripture teaching, out of the heart flows a wellspring of life. What you do on the outside must derive from a transformed inner life. 
Now, of course, it's possible for some people to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. In fact, it's very easy, in fact, to, do, to, to look the part but not actually be the part. It's very, it's very common, in fact, maybe even simple, to, to fake it. To convince maybe one another that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a solid believer, follower of Jesus. I know what to say. I know what to do. But it doesn't mean that it's real. As Jesus will even teach in Matthew chapter 6, we'll see that the, that the Pharisees, they prided themselves on external religious activity. They prided themselves on their ability to keep the law, to keep the rules, to do, to do the right thing. They convinced everybody else that they were, in a sense, better because they could keep the rules, they could keep the law better than anybody else. But that did not mean that they were the real deal. That's why John the Baptist say, you whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. They're also known as brood of vipers. In other words, you are of your father, the devil. The fact is, Jesus seeks to target the inner life, the inner person, to cause transformation of the inner person so that therefore what comes out, what is seen on the surface is sourced from a transformed life. Now one conclusion that you and I must, that we will continually uh, make over time as we unpack this sermon is this. You cannot keep these expectations that Jesus has. You cannot live up to the standard by which Jesus is calling us to as citizens of this kingdom. In other words, in and of yourself, you are incapable of doing what Jesus is calling us to do perfectly. For example, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That disqualifies everybody. But yet Jesus says, this is what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. But the point that Jesus is seeking to drive home in establishing the values and the characteristics of this kingdom is to drive us to the cross. Is to drive us and to convince us that we need someone. We need an advocate we need a savior. We need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The whole intent of Jesus' teaching is yes, to transform the heart, but it's to help us realize wow, in and of myself, I got nothing. We see at the very beginning of Jesus' sermon, I'm talking, kind of talking big picture right now, Sermon on the Mount for three chapters, but Jesus begins his sermon by what we call the Beatitudes. I don't know how much of you have glossed over the Beatitudes or you kind of read through them and you're like, yeah, lots of blessings, not really sure what the poor in spirit is and those who mourn. None of that sounds very appealing to me, so let's just get to the good stuff. But there's a reason why Jesus begins his three-chapter sermon with these eight Beatitudes. Thomas Watson, he, uh, he's a Puritan preacher and writer. 
he actually wrote an entire book based on these eight Beatitudes. And his conclusions about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount were this. He says this, the Beatitudes are really the Bible epitomized. They're actually the, the, the summation of biblical Christianity. In other words, if you understand what Jesus is teaching here, even in these eight blessings, these eight Beatitudes, you will understand in the grand scheme and even in great detail what biblical Christianity is all about, what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Now, we oftentimes, or at least in the theological world, we use the word beatitude. Maybe in your Bible it says beatitude, or in my Bible it says beatitudes. What does beatitude mean? Well, you can kind of read the verse, and we might quickly conclude that it means blessing, which is true. It means blessing, or to be happy, to be fortunate. In other words, what Jesus is driving home is like, this is what a blessed person is like. This is, this is how someone receives blessing from God. However, we must understand before we even get into the text that blessingness, a blessing from God or happiness is not dependent upon our ability, nor is it dependent upon our circumstances. We're not to conclude that, oh, I'm blessed if I can do this for myself, or I'm blessed if, uh, if this happens to go just the right way. No, you are blessed based on some certain factors. In other words, as D.A. Carson would say, this word for blessing is really means, it means to be approved by God. To be blessed means to be approved and therefore accepted by God. John MacArthur, he, he states it this way, he says, blessedness is, the, is a characteristic of God and it can be only a characteristic of people so long as they share in the nature of God. In other words, what Jesus is going to get at here in more detail is that those who are truly blessed in this life, those who are truly innocent, experiencing a deep-seated happiness or joy and contentment in this life are those who, be- who, have, uh, who belong to the kingdom of God. If you want to experience the blessing that he's about to talk about, then you must also belong to the kingdom of God. Others may be able to observe these blessings. Others may may be able to observe the benefits, but they cannot experience it unless you first belong to God's kingdom. The fact is the world offers many alternatives. The world offers many alternatives approaches and how you and I can obtain and experience happiness, joy, contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction, ultimately a blessed life. But as we went through the series in Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes it very clear that he tried everything And he had the means and the ability to try out everything that this world had to offer only to make this conclusion, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In other words, I can't quite grasp what I'm longing for, no matter how hard I try. 
In other words, the world offers many approaches to, to glean happiness from this life only to come up short. If only I get this, if only I make more of this, if only I do this, if only I acquire this, then I'll be satisfied. But the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus is seeking to establish is saying, if you truly want to be blessed in this life, if you truly want to receive the approval of God, if you truly want to be blessed by Heavenly Father, in your life right now, then this is the means by which you will be blessed. Yes, the world has many voices. Yes, the world offers many alternatives. But Jesus says, this is the source of blessing. It's interesting that these beatitudes or these blessings are assertions of fact and not probability. The Beatitudes are assertions of fact and not that of probability. In other words, what I mean by that is this. Proverbs, if you were to contrast it with the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is a bunch of if-then statements. If you live in this way, then you can, well, most of the time, expect this certain outcome. If you act in this way, then you can expect this kind of outcome. Now, of course, Ecclesiastes kind of blows the roof off all that and says it's not always true. There's always lots of exceptions to the rule. But in general, you do reap what you sow. If you're foolish, this is what you can expect by living a foolish life. If you're wise, this is what you can expect by living a wise life. But the Beatitudes are different because it's not just like here's the best chances of things happening. Jesus says these are 100% certain If this characteristic or quality is true of you, you can, with 100% certainty, expect this blessing from God. It's interesting to, to note as well, as we already kind of briefly talked about, that Jesus is focusing on the inner life. He's focusing on transforming the heart Another way to state that is this. The focus on these blessings is not in your doing, but it's in your being. Jesus' goal is not to to control or somehow uh, to manipulate some sort of behavior modification. He's not trying to make you act like good Christians. He wants you to actually embody what it means to be Christ-like. He wants you to embody genuine or authentic transformation. As one pastor put it, he says, these are not called the do attitudes, these are called the be attitudes. Because your doing follows your being. When the heart is transformed, therefore in turn, we expect the right actions to follow. And this is where it gets very dangerous because we can bypass the whole being part, act like we got the being part, but not actually have the being part. As I said before, it's very possible to look very Christian and not be Christian. It's very possible to even serve Christ's church and not actually be a part of his church. It's very possible, and statistically speaking, even probably true in this service right now, that some of us have played the part but never actually are a part of the team. We've never actually repented and turned to Christ. 
the focus that Jesus is seeking to emphasize is on what we are becoming, to transform the heart. And just in case we are wondering uh, that Jesus is giving eight random blessings here, eight random beatitudes are in no particular order, we must understand that these beatitudes are actually built upon one another in progressive order. In other words, there's a, Jesus, is, Jesus is very purposeful in how he builds upon each of these blessings. There's a reason why he starts with the first blessing in verse 3. In other words, it can't be verse 9. It can't be a blessing later. He says, first you must understand this is the true source of blessing, and if you get this, then we can build upon that foundation. So Jesus is not throwing out eight possible characteristics of eight kinds of Christian. He's actually throwing out eight characteristics or values that are true or the genuine follower of Christ of someone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And the first blessing, the first beatitude, he says in verse three is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you, the person who is truly blessed in this life, according to Jesus, is the person who is poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? You know, there's a n- number of synonyms that we can use to help capture the full meaning of what this word poor is. Oftentimes it's referred to as lowly or humble or fiscally poor. It describes someone who is uh, impoverished financially. Maybe doesn't, not, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of things, but doesn't have many things. It does, they, they have a little bit, but they don't have a lot of anything. Um, even, and I'm, I don't say this in a crass way, even homeless people have some things to help us capture what Jesus is getting at here. But the kind of poor that Jesus is talking about here is someone who has nothing. In fact, the spirit part qualifies what the kind of poor we're talking about. The poor in spirit is the realization of our spiritual bankruptcy. The poor in spirit is to realize that we are spiritually uh, impoverished before God. It's to see yourself as a person who is hopelessly lost. Carson says that the conscious confession of unworth before God is one who is poor in spirit. It is, it is the deepest form of repentance. It's, as Luke 18, as Jesus describes in Luke chapter 18, it's the tax collector who's standing in the temple and doesn't even raise his eyes and, and all he can utter out of his mouth is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, as he beats his chest. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those who are humble in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who are humble in spirit. And those who are humble in spirit understand. They realize their spiritual depravity before God. They understand that they have nothing 
to offer God. Why does Jesus begin his sermon, his whole three-chapter sermon, with that first point? Because humility is foundational to following Jesus. Humility is foundational to following Jesus. Jesus Jesus says this in Matthew 18, and he says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The reason why humility is of the utmost importance or why it is so foundational to the Christian life, why it is so foundational to, as a citizen of the kingdom, why it is so foundational to following Jesus is because we will never turn to Christ unless we first understand our need for Christ. You and I will never turn to Christ unless you understand your need for Christ and you will never understand your need for Christ unless in humility you understand your spiritual depravity. So if you think you have something to offer God, then automatically you don't understand your full need for Christ. If you think that God... finds you acceptable based on what you do, even by your faithfulness, it automatically exposes a wrong approach to God. God, you must love me because look how faithful I am. God, you must love me because look what I do for you. God, you must find me acceptable because look how good I am to other people. God, you must find me acceptable and all the while, it is a mockery to the cross of Jesus. It is as Paul would say in Philippians chapter three, I had all this resume of accomplishments but I consider them as filthy rags. I consider all things as lost to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, everything that Paul had, all his credentials did not matter. It did not affect his relationship with God in the sense that it made him more acceptable to God. What made Paul acceptable to God, what makes anyone acceptable to God, is God. And our part in this is to realize we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. We must, in a sense, become like this tax gatherer and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Humility precedes blessing from God. We see Isaiah 57, for example. This is God speaking. He says, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. Restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those, who, who, those with repentant hearts. Elsewhere in, in chapter 66 of Isaiah, Jesus says, or God says, I have spoken this. I'm the one who both created heaven and earth. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts who tremble at my word. The one who's truly blessed by God is not the, the person who's got a ton of gifts, The one who's truly blessed by God is not the person who has the right personality. 
The one who's truly blessed by God is not the someone who's accomplishing great things necessarily even for God. The one who is truly blessed by God is one who is humble and contrite before the Lord. Realizing their spiritual bankruptcy and therefore in a place in which God can exalt. Humility is foundational to following Jesus. It's it precedes blessing from God. It really it precedes all other virtues or beatitudes because it is foundational to all other virtues. But we see in contrast or the antithesis of humility, and you know what I'm about to say, is pride. The opposite of humility, the opposite of being poor in spirit is pride. Now pride takes a lot of different forms and shapes. It comes in a variety of ways. But specifically here, what Jesus is exposing is the pride of spiritual self-sufficiency. The kind of pride that Jesus is actually speaking against is this pride of spiritual self-sufficiency. It's a pride that says, I can make myself acceptable to God. I can, through my good works, through my devotion, make an acceptable offering to God. And yet, it's much like the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like other people, cheaters, swindlers, sinners, adulterers, especially like this tax collector. In fact, look, God, what I do, I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all, I income, of all my income. I mean, look at what I'm doing. The problem is this Pharisee did not understand his spiritual bankruptcy. He did not understand that He was totally impoverished spiritually. And because of that, Jesus says in Luke 18, I tell you, this sinner, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus warns the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter three when he says, you say I am rich and I have everything I want and I don't need a thing and goes on to say, but you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The point that Jesus is getting at even in that passage is this, until we recognize that we are poor and and miserable and blind and naked and wretched, only then and in that place can we receive the blessing of God? You see, humility is foundational not only to turning to Christ, but it's foundational to following Christ. Humility is foundational to obeying Christ. It's a foundational to our witness for Christ. It's foundational to becoming like Christ. It all begins with a spirit of humility. And the question for you and for me this morning is this, how does this become true of me? How do I embody this and not fake it? It's easy to have a humble pride, right? It's easy to, to, to kind of know how to even act humble. This is how insidious sin is. Even when we attempt and have, have a genuine desire to be humble, sometimes we can bypass the becoming of it and actually go on, I'm just gonna appear very humble to people. No, 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 don't, don't thank me for that. 
No, 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 it's okay. No, no, I'm not really that, that good. Okay, I am, but I won't tell you that. But How do you and I become humble? How do you and I become poor in spirit? Well, understand this, church family. You can't choose to become humble. You don't choose to become humble. You may want to, but you can't decide, okay, I'm going to be humble today. I've just decided to embody a spirit of humility. You cannot pretend to be humble, as I said, but we must understand that humility is fostered in your life when you focus on God and not on you. If you want to become, as Jesus says, poor in spirit and therefore receive the blessing of God, we must understand that we cannot keep our focus on ourselves because then we'll think of ourselves as better than we really are. But when we focus on God, in a sense what we are doing by focusing on God is we are coming into the light. And when we come into the light, everything is exposed. We see ourselves as we really are. We don't focus on ourselves. Instead, we we come into the light and when we see ourselves as we really are, we go, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's much like Peter's response in Luke chapter five. When he sees who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's capable of, he he, he cowers in a sense in shame and says, "Don't, don't even look at me, I'm a sinner. Don't even come near me. And after Jesus affirms him, he says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. It's as Isaiah, in his vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God high and lifted up on his throne, his only response is to fall flat on his face. Realizing he has nothing. The way in which humility or that poor in spirit is fostered in your life and in my life is to keep our gaze fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's to ask God, God, I know, I'm aware of it, you're aware of it, and I'm, I'm aware in some degree of how much I struggle with pride. But Lord, I know this is only divisive And this does not allow me to receive your blessing. So would you make me humble? It's as as David prays in Psalm chapter 51. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I believe also that we can renew our minds through through devouring devouring of scriptures. What I mean by that is that when we are in the word of God, we must understand that this is not just a bunch of black and red text. It's not just a convenient source of many. But this is the very word of God. It is alive, it is a powerful. In fact, we see that Hebrews 4 says this, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of the spirit of the joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want God to make you like himself, then look no further than being a student of his word. It's like a mirror. You look at it and go, ooh, 
I'm not as pretty as I thought I was. I'm not as good as I thought I was. I'm not as grand and amazing as I thought I was or wish I was. The fact is, I say this in closing, everyone is spiritually bankrupt. Everyone on the face of this earth is spiritually bankrupt. The only difference is some realize it and some do not. Some understand that they have nothing to bring to God and some understand that they think that they do, but they really don't. And those that think that they are not spiritually bankrupt, that they have something to offer to Jesus, they will always live life on their terms in their way. But as a result, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But the person who is poor in spirit, who realizes their spiritual poverty before God, that is the person who Jesus says is truly blessed. Brothers and sisters, if you want to understand who the truly blessed person is in this this life, it's the one who is humble. 